Straw Hut Media. It's a mantra a lot of us heard frequently growing up. You are unique. You are special. But you're not the only special one. I'm special, he's special, also her, and of course, them too. It's one of the main criticisms the older generations hurl at the younger ones. We're the ones with participation awards and delusions of grandeur, but also, I'll remind you, crippling student loan debt, outrageous rent prices, and the economic and cultural fallout of a lot of bad decisions. But anyway, today we're talking to writer, producer, and actor Ryan O'Connell about his Netflix series Special, the mostly autobiographical story of a gay disabled man trying to carve out a career as a writer and trying to accomplish the seemingly impossible feat of being special and normal at the same time. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. Hey, hey, focus. Save that for Grinder. I love that you think I have enough self-esteem to be on Grinder. Special came out in April of last year. It's short. There are eight 15-minute episodes, which means you could binge it in less time than it takes to watch Titanic. A lot less time, come to think of it. The show is about a guy named Ryan. I was in the closet about being gay, and then I was in the closet about being disabled, and now, no more closets. I am Ryan O'Connell, um, the writer, creator, star of Netflix's Special. Special is based on Ryan's 2015 memoir, I'm Special and Other Lies We Tell Ourselves. But when he originally pitched the book, it wasn't anything like what he ended up writing. When I sold my book to Simon & Schuster, it was not about my disability at all. I sold this bullshit, like, fucking Urban Outfitters coffee table book, like, called How to Be a 20-something. Back in 2010, Ryan was living in New York City. He had just graduated from the new school, and he had scored an internship at a brand new online youth culture magazine called Thought Catalog. Working at Thought Catalog was so crazy because I basically became a full-time writer at the age of 24 just talking about my feelings, which of course I had like 40,000 of them because again, I was a 24-year-old gay man and um, just basically like a gaping open wound of a human. The internship turned into a paid position and he wrote non-stop. If you look at his author page on Thought Catalog now, there are 119 pages of articles listed, which translates to more than a thousand pieces of content. That's because while he was there, he was expected to produce three articles per day. I'm stunned. I'm actually like, honestly, hashtag respect to my former self because I cannot believe I was able to produce that much content. Now, I'm not saying that they were all great. I'm sure this was like, (laughs) this was definitely a quantity over quality issue. He did it though. He churned out witty, self-effacing, millennial content day after day after day. There were some reflections on scientific research. For example, new study shows that being gay may be your mom's fault. There were some cultural commentaries. Miley Cyrus takes a bong hit, an angel gets its wings. There were chronicles of life as a young gay man. What it feels like to get fucked in the ass, which opens like this. Getting your ass penetrated should be a prerequisite for life because it's an experience that teaches humility and encourages teamwork. And then, of course, the how-to articles, how to be drunk, how to have Twitter, and of course, how to appear cooler on Facebook than you really are. They were funny and honest, and they started going viral. Pretty soon, Ryan was being published in Vice, BuzzFeed, and even the New York Times. Not that everything he wrote was good, 
With that volume of writing, it was impossible for every article to be a masterpiece. But even that ended up serving him because he says he learned to not be precious about his writing. I think a lot of people get stuck and they, you know, over the first draft and they need everything to be perfect. And I think it thought kind of like, I just had to learn to like let things go and just slap things up, um, which I think really just helped me in the long run. When you're pumping out three articles every day, writer's block just isn't an option. I think I am prolific and I probably will be prolific forever because of Thought Catalog. I mean, I basically wrote like three books worth of material like a year. Now, 10 years later, crowdsourced websites like Medium and BuzzFeed are all over the place. Satirical news like The Onion and Reductress reign supreme, and the snarky confessional blog post has all but been replaced by the even quicker to digest meme. But back then, it really felt like we were kind of like hitting the zeitgeist in a really great moment. And um, I don't know, it was it was a weird, crazy time. I mean, we're all like babies just writing about our feelings and getting like drunk at happy hour every day and like doing drugs. And um, it was probably like very unprofessional and weird, but it was also like a weird fucked up family vibe. The problem Ryan had was that even though it looked like he was doing really well for himself, he was internet famous and he had a book deal, he wasn't really making any money. And he was also keeping a pretty big secret. I was born with mild cerebral palsy, which is what happens when there's birth trauma. So basically how that manifests through me is that I have a limp. Um, and like some like, you know, sprinklings of like, you know, brain damage here and there and like <laughs> spatial issues, blah, 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 blah. But the thing about cerebral palsy is that it looks different on everybody. You can dress it up, you can dress it down. The article Ryan wrote for Thought Catalog when his book came out was called Coming Out of the Disabled Closet. But what about the other closet? The one we usually talk about on Pride. What's it like growing up as a gay kid with cerebral palsy? Reminiscing on my early jerk-off days in the shower as a 13-year-old boy, you know, I think uh, every guy can relate to the fact that it always starts with, you know, a woman and a man. And then all of a sudden, the fantasy, the woman gets shoved out until she's completely (laughs) off screen. (laughs) And then you're coming to, like, a guy and you're like, oh my god, wait, I'm gay. Able-bodied gay men had a hard enough time finding relatable queer characters. So what was it like for Ryan? I think, honestly, not to throw shade, because I'm sure... The show is very important and and did a lot to help people. But my only point of reference for like gay culture at that point was Queer as Folk, which to me felt like just a lot of gay men with perfect bodies having like insane like rabbit porn sex. I remember in middle school, I would like sneak off to Blockbuster Video and like rent those rent those episodes like incognito and like watch them when like when my parents went to bed. And it really reinforced this idea of like, oh, like there really is no place for me in the queer community. Like, I don't look like how these boys look. Still, when Ryan finally did come out, he says everything started out strong. I came out when I was 17 and I had this like weird, dreamy kind of perfect coming out experience where I told everyone I knew in like two weeks and everyone really was accepting. And then I got a boyfriend and, you know, I like fell in love or like teenage love and, you know, lost my virginity. And I, and I really felt like, oh my God, this isn't supposed to happen to boys like me. This isn't supposed to happen to gay disabled boys. Like, how do I even deserve this? Like, there was a lot of insecurity and a lot of feeling like I was like cosplaying as someone else, you know? But when that relationship ended, as most high school relationships do, it was bad. I I remember hearing secondhand that a girl at school had been like, oh my God, why, why is this guy with Ryan? I mean, Ryan has cerebral palsy. That's so gross. 
And I remember it was like someone vocalizing my worst fears about myself just right there out in the open. And it kind of just reinforced this idea that like, I was unlovable, I didn't deserve a boyfriend, like I'm unfuckable. And when my boyfriend and I broke up, um, I was pretty much like celibate mostly for 10 years. Like, I think that like, that experience and the breakup itself really scarred me and kind of reinforced these harmful ideas I had about myself. It set him back, big time. And he spent the next 10 years basically alone. I was pretty much like homosexual in theory, but not so much in practice. Even though that first step out of the closet was so perfect, it didn't move forward in the linear way Ryan had hoped it would. In a way, I felt like I kind of went back in the closet, even though I never, you know, said I wasn't gay or whatever, I just completely got spooked and, you know, getting dumped and having this person say this thing about me was sort of like, oh, how foolish. I'm such a fool for thinking that I could have those things. Since Ryan moved to New York, he had been hiding his cerebral palsy from his coworkers and his friends. I didn't want to be identified as disabled. I thought it was an ugly word. I, I, I wanted nothing to do with that whole entire world. I mean, that's just because in our culture, disability is so, there's no dialogue around disability, you know? And um, there's such a stigma attached to it. And I kind of obviously got the memo from society at a very young age. Just before he moved to New York, Ryan was hit by a car. In the show, it's the inciting incident, but then Ryan gets hit by a car and it's just like, anyways, and like breaks his arm. Like, it's no big deal. But uh, in real life, I got hit by a car and I was in the hospital for a month and had four surgeries. And um, I developed something called compartment syndrome, which is what happens when something hits you at such uh, great force that it cuts off the oxygen supply to the muscles. So um, I lost a lot of functioning in my left hand. All of the new people he met in New York assumed his limp was a result of that accident. And rather than, you know, start every budding new friendship with, okay, well, so I have cerebral palsy, but I also acquired this other fun, flirty disability on top of it called compartment syndrome. Like, that wasn't the bio that, like, I loved for me. So, like, I kind of just thought, okay, why don't we just streamline this moment and just, like, attribute everything to my car accident? Like a lot of disabled people, he had already struggled with internalized ableism throughout his childhood and his adolescence. So I think it was just an opportunity for me to kind of rewrite my identity and kind of go after this, the life that I wanted, which was someone who was able-bodied and had that taken away from them. But, um, you know, I mean, that was fun for a couple of years, but spoiler alert, you can't lie about who you are. It will cause problems. At that point, I was very closeted about my disability and I kind of knew that it was creating problems for me. Again, I was, I was dealing with an addiction to painkillers and I was just really depressed and I didn't have any relationships. And, you know, I think you have these weird moments of clarity, even like when you're, you know, immersed in the self-hatred of being like, when I got this book deal, I kind of just knew deep in my bones, I was like, okay, this is my opportunity to be honest about who I am. And if I do this correctly, it could save my life. So when Ryan went in for his first meeting at Simon & Schuster, he told them about his disability. And he said that he didn't really want to write a throwaway book about how to survive your 20s. Instead, he wanted to write about being a gay man with cerebral palsy and trying to figure it out. And even talking about it in a room full of people, 
was revolutionary for me. I mean, I had not uttered the word cerebral palsy in years. I mean, I just, I did not talk about it. It was not a thing that was on the docket. When the book came out, Ryan's life changed, practically overnight. I went from not talking about cerebral palsy to now just like screaming it from various mountaintops. It was incredibly healing, incredibly liberating because, you know, once you own everything, no one can take anything away from you. I felt like I was living some variation of a lie my entire life and now I finally was just who I was. And guess what? No one gave a shit. It's like so crazy to think about all the years I spent um, hating this part of my identity. And really, no one batted an eyelash. You know, it was a lot of it was in my head. Now, that being said, I think I come from a place of like immense privilege having a mild case. But in my experience, no one gave a shit. It came out of the disabled closet. Everyone was like, cool, anyways, should we get like fries for the table? Like, <laughs> like it just was sort of NBD. And then I felt like my life could really begin. Ryan decided to move to LA to follow his passion for television writing. In the end, he had outgrown Thought Catalog. If you age correctly, you become less interested in yourself. <laughs> um, and I think that's sort of what I was experiencing at Thought Catalog. I was just sort of done like with it, with all of that. Now I know that sounds psychotic because now I have a, have a TV show based on my life, but you know, TV, you can fictionalize things and things start off as being very autobiographical, but as the story develops, it becomes something entirely different. And that's exciting to me. I like the idea of something that's really personal, but not the fucking pages of my diary. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Ryan's first advocate in Hollywood. Welcome back. Today we're talking to Ryan O'Connell, creator and star of the Netflix show Special. The show is based on his 2015 memoir, I'm Special and Other Lies We Tell Ourselves. Ryan and I are from that same special generation. But just believing you're special, which you are, don't fight me, doesn't mean you're impenetrable. I think hubris and like wild insecurity coexist. So even like if I did feel like a little bit like I'm unique, I have something to say. I also thought I was truly human garbage can. So like the two can coexist. <laughs> and I think they often do. <laughs> the thing that you have to add to your special recipe, Ryan says, is hard work. It's the only way anyone ever gets anything accomplished. I think that's something that people don't really talk about. Like, I feel like whenever I like read about someone getting their own TV show or whatever, they're like, oh my God, lol, it just like fell in my lap. It's so crazy that it's here. And you're like, no, babe, you had to truly work your fucking ass off and you had to like eat a lot of shit sandwiches and you had to hear a lot of rejection. Da 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 da. And I think like, like there's something like not chic to like say that you want something and to say that you're ambitious. And I think. For me, the through line of getting from point A to point B was always that I just worked really, really hard and I kept my eye on the prize. That's not about feeling special. That's just about having a work ethic. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just being really determined. And again, I just, I don't think people talk about ambition in our culture because I think it's a dirty word. And I think it's much easier to create this narrative of like, things just happened. It was so crazy. And now I'm like here starring in my own show or having my book deal. Like, it's so crazy. Like, what? Me? And it's like, no, like, 
I, oh, I'm like a type A Virgo from hell. Like I had a fucking plan, honey, a five year plan. I was like, okay, doing this, doing that, blah, blah, blah. And um, even though I was at the time, you know, having insane low self-esteem and, you know, uh, having lots of boy problems and having a drug problem and all that stuff. I think that my career was always a safe place and I, I kind of carved it out as a little cocoon. It was like the one place where everything made sense and where I felt confident in my abilities. Everything else was a human disaster zone, but like total District 9 vibes. But I think I think my career was the one place that I felt like, okay, I have I have some kind of control over what's happening and I think it's going to be okay. When Ryan's book came out, Jim Parsons, who plays Sheldon on The Big Bang Theory, read it and he went nuts for it. I got an email from my agent being like, Jim Parsons wants to meet you at his house to talk about your book. And I was like, lol, what? I thought I was like truly like getting Ashton Kutcher pumped. But um. But so I go to like his giant mansion in Los Feliz where like I didn't even know how to like open the door. It truly was hilarious. Like my Uber dropped me off and like I saw his gate and I was just like, hello? <laughs> to like call my agent to like let me in. It was just honestly very embarrassing. And he and his partner Todd, um, they're just so down to earth and so funny and so dry and they just fucking get it. And let me tell you, as someone who's been around enough famous people the last seven years working in television, I will say, and I don't mean to break anyone's heart, but a lot of them are fucking insane. <laughs> or, like, or they're like, they're, they're nice or they're sweet, but there's a little something off about them. I mean, you know, it's being famous is weird and it makes you a weird person. I don't think I'm, you know, um, shocking anybody with that statement, but with Jim, he's just, he really is like a breath of fresh air. And I think I honestly, like I've talked to this about him, like, how are you so normal? And then I realized he didn't get Big Bang Theory until he was like 30. And I think that there's a big difference. He had time to be normal. (laughs) Yes. Like the foundation was set. The clay had dried. And I think that when you achieve fame at like 20 versus 30, I mean, it's like night and day. You're like, oh, you're fucked. You were famous too young. Now you're crazy. Exactly. It's like, it's not their fault. Honestly, like being on set and being the star of a TV show, like it really like people are weird. Like people do treat you like you're God's gift. It's really like bizarre and like not chic and luckily i'm like 33 and also honestly disabled which is the biggest humbling equalizer (laughs) my my crooked feet will always (laughs) remain firmly placed on the ground whenever i start feeling myself don't worry our ableist society really brings me right back down to earth um (laughs) but uh but anyway jim jim was amazing his husband todd's amazing and they just always supported my vision and you know it's like when you are a powerless gay in this industry, you often need a power gay to kind of anoint you and be like, no, no, listen to this person. He matters. The thing about Special is that Ryan was not only telling his story, he was the first one to tell a story like it. He was a gay disabled actor playing himself, writing himself, and even show running. I think that in Hollywood, you know, disabled stories can get told, but they're often portrayed by able-bodied actors or they're written by able-bodied writers. Um, It was kind of crazy to be in this position of absolute control and power over my narrative. He was introduced to the disabled Hollywood scene. 
it's been it's been great it's been like i mean it's like full immersion honey <laughs> like <laughs> like it's not like i like dipped my toes in the water like i'm fully just like in it <laughs> and it's been really really incredible on this show we often talk about firsts on tv sherry cola on good trouble jake borelli on gray's anatomy every time a big network gives someone the opportunity to tell their own story somewhere an angel gets its wings no it's not because miley cyrus hit her bong again the great thing about Netflix, I will say, is that I think a show like Special might have aired, but it might have aired somewhere like on like Verizon Go 90 or like full screen or whatever the fuck where you need like a DNA sample to like access the content. And like literally it's seen by like five people who like write for IndieWire and then it's done. Um, so I think having like the, the sheer reach that Netflix has is so fucking incredible. So that someone in a completely different country can watch this thing and be like, oh my God, that person reminds me of myself. Like, I mean, representation does matter, not to sound like a broken record, but when you erase life experiences on the television screen or, you know, in movies, you're implicitly telling people that they don't matter, that their voice is not valued. When we choose to highlight those voices, we remind everyone that they do matter. I went to this um, event in Santa Barbara, this um, this gay prom thing that was so sweet. And I met a, a guy there that was 16. He had glasses like me, brown hair. He like kind of looked like my twin. And he, he was disabled. And he was telling me how much the show meant to me. And I think in that moment, you know, because I get messages all the time and stuff, but seeing a face to it for the first time was incredibly powerful. And I was like, oh, like, I can't imagine. I I I know how important this show is to this person because I am this person as well. And again, if I had seen this at sixteen, I would have felt my existence would have been so validated. But as we talked about with trans filmmaker Sam Fader and trans actress Jen Richards a few weeks ago, all representation is not created equal. When I see a show about disability or anything, and then it's like, oh, there's only like, and you look at the room and like, oh, there's only like a disability consultant. You're like, well, that doesn't do anything. That doesn't advance us. Like we live in a capitalism, like hellhole, And like the only way people can really advance is through money and opportunities and accruing, and that way they can accrue power and people can't accrue power by being a consultant. Like you need to give them that staff writer money, honey. You need to give them like, you just need to give them more power and control. Otherwise, it's like you're just doing something that makes you look good, but you're not actually advancing the cause. I also think that Hollywood is like addicted to like profiting off our pain, but not giving us any opportunities. And that's why, you know, I talk about how important it is that I had control over the show as the showrunner, as the writer, as the star, as the EP. And we always have to remind ourselves there's still a long road ahead. You know, I just came off a of Pride Month where I was like contractually obligated to do like 80,000 diversity panels in Hollywood. Um, and I'm always just the only disabled one. And uh, so, yes, having special get made and be at a place like Netflix is absolute progress. But there needs to be a more, more, a lot more. I mean... I think it's like one in four people identify as disabled, and yet the content does not reflect that at all. That might seem like a crazy number, but it's true. In 2018, the CDC reported that one in four U.S. adults are living with some form of disability. 
And to me, it just feels like, honestly, don't do it for humanity because God knows everyone in Hollywood doesn't have a soul, but do it for business. I mean, it just seems like bad business to exclude these stories because so many people are thirsty for it. I mean, think about us as gay men, like when when a show or when a movie or a TV show has like the slightest hint of gay in it, we're like fully addicted, they're opening day with popcorn. Special has been pretty well received. A review in Variety said that it tackles timeless issues with equal parts compassion and wit. Another review in Vulture described Ryan as funny and compelling and impressively committed to depicting his own imperfections. It's certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with a 96%. The response for Special was just incredible. I mean, I think, you know, I was nervous. What I cared the most about was the feedback from the disabled community because, you know, I think everyone knows that in storytelling, you can't tell everybody's story. You can only tell yours. And I was really nervous that a lot of disabled people might not be able to see themselves in my show because their disability looked different than mine. But um, I think it really spoke to just like the universal experience that people were able to attach themselves to my story. And they were so welcoming and so loving and supportive. It was just honestly a hashtag must experience because in Hollywood, getting something made is so medium rare, but then having it well received is like truly like a 1% experience. So I just felt so, so, so lucky. And it also just validated my experience because Special took four years to get made door to door. And when we first went out with it in 2015, everyone passed. And it was infuriating because I knew, I knew the pitch was good. And um, I think, you know, I think what these things happen is like, you know, you have the cool young exec in the room and then they have to, you know, then they have to bring the idea up the chain of of command. And the chain of command is like an old straight white guy named Ralph. And, you know, Ralph is going to be like gay, disabled, (laughs) confused. But like we should (laughs) greenlight that Kevin James sitcom. Like that's amazing. So I think special being well received was just like this completely validating experience being like no my story does have value my life does have value and guess what people can see themselves in it you know some people that aren't even disabled or gay because you know being human is a universal experience well pride listeners good news special is coming back to netflix for a second season when we got the renewal it was amazing because um netflix really stepped up and uh supported the show and It was just, um, it's amazing to honestly have like a big giant corporation behind you for your like little gay disabled show and um, them being your little cheerleaders. It was, it was incredible. What are your hopes for season two? Um, I think season two, I just wanted to feel fuller. I think that in season one, because I only had 15 minutes to to tell the episodes, um, it felt a little fishbowly to me. Like, I, like if you have 15 minutes to tell a story, nothing can breathe. I mean, honey, you're like off to the fucking races. You're hitting those story beats and that's what you're doing. And I think the story to me felt a little small, just out of necessity and by design. And I think season two, I want to create a bigger, more textured world. Um, one that includes my co-star Kim, uh, played by Poonie I Paul. love her. She's brilliant. So I always wanted to dive deeper into the character of Kim, but because of time, I just couldn't. And I knew that for season two, um, 
I was like, no, no, she needs her own storyline. She needs her own journey. I want to see her. Like, what does she do when she goes home? What does she do when she's not with Ryan? So season two, for me, that was just a necessity. Um, I also think we just have a long history in television of, you know, having a, a person of color be the, like, emotional Sherpa for the white character in a way that I just, I hate. <laughs> Um, so it's important that everyone gets the chance to be uh, multifaceted and, you know, be rich with nuance and texture. So season two will be a lot more Kim. Ryan says they were able to finish four episodes of season two before COVID-19 shut everything down. So now we're kind of just figuring out how to start up again and finish the thing. I really want people to see it. I really am proud of the first four episodes and I think people are going to really like it. You can try to keep up with Ryan on Twitter at Ryan O'Conn. O-C-O-N-N. And then Ryan O'Conn on Instagram. I'm like kind of over the internet right now. I'm like trying not to be on it so much because it feels toxic and weird. But um, but that's I mean, coronavirus for sure, because I feel the same way. I go through Instagram and I'm like, I don't want to see because now I feel like we're getting to this point where everyone that used to do like, look how wonderful my life is. They're still doing that, but they're like, look how wonderful it is, except I'm in quarantine. I can't go anywhere. I'm super depressed. I haven't worked in four months. And you're like, got it. Yeah, it's very, it's very zero dark 30. I mean, I think that like, it's, I also think that like, we live in a life now where we are now just our online selves because no one's living a life off of online. So I think people forget that we are more than our avatars. We are more than our digital selves. And I think it gets kind of creepy, quite frankly, that like people now just live online and there's like, that's it. I think that it's good to step away. Okay. So maybe step away for a minute, then flip on the TV and watch season one of Special. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. lol like lol lol saying the word lol is is a disease it's like literally like a lol robot you're like lol you say it even when you're not even like lolling i mean it's disgusting we're all disturbed god help us all